Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Jimmy Quinn, Jimmy, welcome to Luck on Sunday. Nick, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. And 1984 to now, that is one hell of a riding career. But you, you still look as sprightly and enthusiastic for the game as ever. Yeah, I still enjoy it. I love it. Get out of bed. I eat, drink, sleep the job, you know. Um, but I wouldn't have thought back in 84 I'd still be doing it. But I can do nothing else, so I still want to do it. So that's why I'm here. So what, what started it all off for you? Well, at home, we always had ponies. and like uh, as, as a kid uh, in Ireland, everyone's got ponies. So it uh, was hunting, show jumping and kids, neighbours, and we used to be just racing each other around the fields every day, so I just progressed from there. And so then you went to the racing school, and I went to race. school in those days, wasn't it? Yeah, in the 80s, it was tough. Uh, I went to race, and um, Mr O'Sullivan, he was the director, very, very good man, very nice man, passed away. Um, and uh, it, there was a big queue to get in there, I think there was 75, there was three courses of 25, there was 75 went on it, and then there was 25 picked on our course. And uh, at the end of, I think it's 11 months or 10 month course, 16 finished. Really? So, so it really was like survival of the fittest. It was a knockout. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you did the first two months you did in the Army Quotation School and those privates didn't miss you. <laughs> and I remember there, yeah, when it was so, so well, like the lads out of the cities, Cork and Dublin, places like that, they didn't even know what hay or straw was. You know, going to bed that horse down with some straw and they were putting them down with hay and they, that was it straight away. Bang, 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 you got to slap. You were never told that was hay or straw. You just, you learned the hard way. And this, this was the Army Equitation School? That was the Army Equitation School, which was run then by um, uh, Pat Phelan, who's now quite a successful trainer in Epsom. And do you, do you look back on that and think that was the right grounding? Or do you look at it now and think, my God, thank God those days are over? They get locked up. <laughs> they get locked up for GBH or whatever, the, whatever they were doing. They would definitely get locked up now. It wouldn't happen. Um, it was just rough and ready, but you learned and you'd, you progressed as you went along. And it was, I remember one thing very well. And I asked the question five years ago. There was always, there was 25 us, and there was 25 horses we had there were ponies, right? And there was always 23 kit bags, 23 forks, 23 brushes, 23 muck sacks. So I said to Pat Phelan, why was there always 23? And he said, to make us competitive. And the sharpest one clicked on quick, because if you were last off the bus, or the last two off the bus, didn't get the kit bag, didn't get the fork, didn't get the brush, <laughs> got the hiding. So you made sure you were off the bus, you had to get out of bed early, get your breakfast, get your front seat on the bus, and then you were off to get your equipment. That is quite extraordinary. It's quite, when you think back how it worked, it made, it made you, from the world go, from the time you got out of bed, you had to... So it made you hungry. It made you, it made you want to do your job, mm. you know. And what, with that as well, it was goals at the end of every week and every month, you know, you got whatever like this. And then at the end of the, 
at the end of the two month thing, there was we got present aid who was the, the best approved or whatever. I think I finished second. Uh, Ron Hillis, who no longer rides, was very good. He was champion, um, overall champion that year. And uh, as far as you were concerned then, did you believe that there was a career for you in Ireland, or did you know that coming to England was something you were going to have? I to was do allocated. Quite soon? We were, I, I, unfortunately, I broke my leg after six weeks in the school, <clears throat> um, and then I went. I was allocated to Mr. Ox, mm-hmm. Mr. John Ox. Loved the job, but I kind of like used to look at the the, um, the papers every day. I stayed with a man, he's passed away now, Tommy McMahon, he loved betting. I used to look at the racing paper, Sport and Life, or whatever, every day. I see so much racing in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I thought there was like probably three meetings a week in Ireland, and some of the meetings were mixed, and I could see more opportunities here. And I went to see Mr. O'Sullivan, and he sent me to Moulton, North Yorkshire, where I had three seasons with Mr. Rowan, Mr. Pat Rowan. He was a very, very good man, great man to work for, uh, and a great man to be, you know. Apprentice to you know, and who were the contemporaries of yours in Moulton at the time? Who was there? I came over. Me and Richard Fay came together. Actually, did you? He was now a very successful trainer, as we all know. <laughs> me and him were together. He was. Yeah, he's had a few winners. Yeah, he's, I think he's a couple. Yeah, um, he was a five pound claimer. He was apprentice to Julian Lyde on the Curra, and I'd I'd not rode. I didn't have any rides, you know. And um, I came here, and my first ride was was for Pat Rowan that year. I came in January, February, and then my first ride was in March. Doncaster. Didn't worry about the ride. I was worried about who was drawn beside me. Famous Lester Piggott. That's all worried me. And he was in the stalls right next to you. What were he you was... thinking? What were you thinking at that moment? Well, you know, everyone will know the first ride. It was six furlongs, remember a well. And I think there was like I was probably ten to go and you're there, you're waiting, you're waiting for the race, and you could just keep looking around. When the last horse was coming in, remember this is this was yesterday, Lester went, Keep straight. I went, What? Huh? He said to me, keep straight, because I'm looking, what? Because they jumped, I missed it ten lengths. <laughs> <laughs> He's caught me out straight away, so I used that one quite a lot myself. With the inexperienced kids. <laughs> and it worked. Just, oh, yeah, 100%. And this was presumably a ruse he would try every time. A, oh, I knew every, every trick in the book, he knew. A rookie came Yeah, came every trick in the book. I mean, you look through, you read his books, you look through his careers. He was ruthless. He knew every trick in the book. How... How in awe were people of his presence when you were sitting in the in the jockey's room? Well, you were, he was were there. nervous of him. You were nervous and you had a lot of respect. Mm. Um, there's a lot more respect. There was a lot more respect then from the younger generation. You know, did all the boys. You were like a bit more intimidated. You'd, you'd be like, um, you're going to ask them questions. You'd be like, you'd be thinking about what you're going to ask them, how you're going to present yourself to them. Whereas like now you get a kid coming up to you and you'd, or even if you give a kid a bollock and they kind of look at you and say, who are you? <laughs> but whereas then you were like, you know, if, if someone did, did Mark Birch, Lorna Merson was very good to me. Mark Lin- Birch? Yeah. Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay I'd, Charnock? Yeah. They've all passed away. But I suppose when I was coming through later in life, <clears throat> the ones who were very helpful was um, in Newmarket was Bruce Raymond, was a very good jockey. Very good now. And Ray Cochran. They were probably like, and Mick Canan, they were the guys I kind of used to look at every day and think, you know, I want to ride like them. What, what was it about them that you particularly admired? Bruce was very, very, very professional. Ray as well, and make you know, draw was very professional. You know, even when you watch them ride, you, know, you go through their videos of, of them riding, and they were very. <clears throat> if you approached them in any way, you could ask them anything, and they would help you. You know, even even outside racing, you know, buy property, do this, do this, do you know whatever, which I took on board, and were I, you know, they're all pretty straight, you know. Uh, you had a good career, a successful career. You were 
you were light. Yeah. Which helped. Yeah. The but, weights then were 7-7. Seven, seven. They progressed with the population, uh, with the people growing up mm. and getting bigger. I mean, you know, now the minimum weight is eight stone. You don't get many eight stones in these big handicaps anymore, generally through the horse population. The handicap system's been so tight. I mean, if you look at the, I think the lightest weight was only one race at Royal Ascot that went down. The rest mm. of the days were all, I think the bottom was 8-12, 8-11. Sure, if your agent rings for 11, 8, 12, you can get around Ryan Moore at that weight, so <laughs> you, you can go somewhere else, you know. But th- then your, your career essentially suffered because the weights were going up a little bit. Is that why you started looking for opportunities abroad? No, I was quite lucky. Um, I think with the Allwater came along, I was very successful in the Allwater, mm. and I was riding for a lot of trainers. Uh, you know, a trainer uh, who I rode for till he packed up was a very good man to ride for um, Hugh Conridge, who ran his horses all year round. Great, great guy to ride for. Very easy. Uh, never, ever pressurise you in a race. Give you a lot of confidence. Another trainer was the same. Was never giving instructions. Uh, Jeff Pierce, I rode a lot of winners from. Who had winners both, both codes, you know. Mm-hmm. I think through riding the volume of winners, I got um, offered jobs abroad, good jobs abroad. Whereas like uh, Hong Kong, I did a season there. Because um, fa- famously, you were the hardest working man in the weighing room. You were getting a thousand rides a year on a routine basis. Yeah, that was... Like back, I think, 23 years ago, when it wouldn't be as much racing, you would just bang everything. I had a very good agent, David Pollington, very good agent. Um, he was, I think he'd been for 18 years. And I got him through Mr. Rohn, and he was phenomenal. He could tell you where and what. He could pick races out for trainers. Mm. Uh, he was so far ahead of everybody else. He was a brilliant agent. And he looked after Kieran Fallon. He did, Kieran. When Kieran came, I think a year after I was, after him doing me, then he looked after Cairn. Mm. Uh, he was at Mr Fitzgerald's Cairn in Morton. And then Ramsons, then it progressed, progressed, progressed. But people talk about burnout now. We, we talk a lot about looking after jockeys, looking after the workforce yeah. in, in horse racing. Clearly something that never afflicted you or did it. You were prepared to throw yourself headlong into ride after ride after ride relentlessly and still seem to be smiling at the end of it. Then you didn't, uh, then you didn't have the um, what you've got now. You know, your dietitians, your... You know, this, mm. whatever it is. So how on earth did you do it? I don't know. I look back now and I think, how did I do that? You, but when, you're in, when you're sort of in the system, you just do it. Mm. And you don't ask any questions. Uh, I don't know, I just, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I, I could be riding. I was saying, I remember, uh, Haydick was on yesterday. I remember, I said, I said to some of the lads, I remember you used to Haydick, going up to Carlisle and then back home. Or even stay at Carlisle and go to air the next, like for today. Things like that. Which like now, if someone said to me, do that, no, no, no. But then it was just like, you did it. You know, you kind of like, Dave was good. He'd, 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 he'd pick it where you'd, you'd go, you'd travel, you could be there for two days. Mm. He wouldn't have you at air and then Brighton or whatever it is. He, he sussed everything out. So well, you'd stay overnight and you'd, you'd rest up in the morning and have a day and a night and stuff like that. He was good. So it was very important to have someone to manage it your was life very, as very well good, as your, yeah. as your you career. Need, you know, as any, you know, any successful person, you need someone behind you there to, mm. you know, to help you along because um, you're, you're kind of focused and busy on your, on your riding actually riding up the horse itself, working the races out. Yeah. Throughout, you know, you just, people think, you know, it's easy. You just go out and you just walk, jump on a horse and ride it. You don't. You've got to do your homework. You know, you've got to do, position the horses around you and, uh, and for yourself as well. You know, yeah. you can't sit behind a bad horse. You've got to make sure everything's right, you know, and smooth. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai. 
Jimmy has now been joined by Jamie Osborne and Ian Bartlett. I hesitate to say luck on Sunday regulars, but certainly semi-regular incumbents it's of that nice seat. It's nice to be back for the first time this year. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, it's <laughs> nice to have you back. And great you could find a slot in your busy diary. Hey, Doc, yesterday? Hey, Doc, yesterday. Great day's racing. It's good. Very and good. Jamie, sound down for you yesterday, though, an early bath. Yeah, I left early because I had to get ready. Um, we were having our stable staff party last night and ran this match, so I'm, sadly I couldn't stay and watch an able win. And how I was making the orange squash and setting out the randers. Field. <laughs> a Jamie Osborne stable staff party. It doesn't sound like an early night. Uh, for me, it wasn't too bad. You know, I'm ultimately dedicated to the cause of coming on Nick Luck on a Sunday morning <laughs> <laughs> for the first time this year. Again, regular. Again, there we go. That's why I did say semi-regular. Uh, and I, I've got to ask on a... Serious note, how everyone is, is doing now at the yard after the fire, everything all sorted and moving uh, on? Yeah, everything sorted. I mean, various degrees of trauma. I mean, the three people that were in the house that sort of came out the windows, um, they've taken it very well. But, I mean, it is a bit of a trauma. Um, for us uh, in the yard, we're continuing as normal. Um, that house is obviously, uh, you know, a big barbecue site. Um but no, it was, listen, it was one of those things that happened, but thankfully nobody mm. was hurt and no horses were hurt, so it's fine. Yeah, ultimately, you just, do you just feel extremely lucky? Uh, yeah, I had a real sense of I didn't care once nobody was hurt. Mm. You know, it was what's happened has happened, and, um, you know, if we, if, it could have been so much worse, Nick. And so. it, has, it in, has it in any way interrupted the sort of momentum of the season, or have you been able to carry on as normal? All the horses get exercised. Everyone's come in as normal. It's absolutely of no consequence. There we are, of no consequence and, and things going on. And, and Barty, you're well, happy, yes, enjoying fine, life. Yes, I'm, I'm eyeing up the almond croissant for later on. I will, I, I will pass, I will, I will pass <laughs> them over to you in due course as we, uh, as we, as we look back on what's happened in racing uh, over the last week. I wanted to, to talk to, to Jamie and, and to Ian and to Jimmy about the, the extraordinary life of John McCrew. We'll be reflecting on Big Mac's career much later in the programme. We'll be talking to Claude Duval, who was one of John's great friends and a long-time senior racing correspondent on The, on the Sun. Um, Jamie, you had quite a number of quite spicy uh, set-twos with, with Mac on the, on the morning line, I can remember, and they were always entertaining. You were just the sort of person he enjoyed sparring with. Really? Oh. Um, it's a long time ago. I don't really remember that. But I, I always found... I, I found him completely different off camera, and I thought he was utterly charming off ca off camera, and a really good guy. Um, I always felt that he lived his life slightly in an act, you know. And I thought how tiring it must be for him because behind, you know, when he was in front of the camera, I think he took on a slightly different persona. I don't know whether other people think the same. Um, and I do remember thinking, you know, God, it must be quite tiresome having to click yourself into character each time there's a camera in your face. Um, because I thought he was completely different I think, behind it. I think so somewhat different, I would, I would say, having worked with him. Yeah, so, I mean, and, and I, never, I don't think, I can't remember I ever did a programme with him, but uh, I used to sit next to him in the press room sometimes, and what Jamie says is right, he was very 
quiet. He would join in with the banter if it started, but he wasn't like you would have expected from what you saw of his TV no. persona that no. he would be the man starting it. He, he wasn't like that. No, he wasn't the sort of he wasn't the sort of central point in a room. He didn't come into a room and you know, everyone would sort of clear the way and he'd be holding court. That wasn't him no. at all. And I echo what I mean. Tanya Stevenson, who was very close to, to John, was absolutely brilliant on the opening show yesterday, talking about her friendship with him and sort of saying fundamentally how kind and encouraging he was to young people in in the business when they started out. And that, I think that's just an excellent quality in, in anyone, Jamie, that, that when they see young people starting in the same job or similar profession, instead of being jealous of them, they are supportive of them and say, Absolutely. go on, yeah. you do your thing, you get in front of the camera, and, and, and really encouraging. Yeah, I mean, if, if you just watched him on television, you, you could imagine that he felt that the whole thing was just about him. Um, you know, he did tend to dominate a show a little bit, mm. didn't he? Um, but that was absolutely not right, not, not, not the, the reality. But the interesting thing, as I found doing programmes with them, and you were saying earlier about when you first went into the starting stalls and Lester Piggott was alongside yeah. you, and the first time I, I walked onto a Channel 4 set in 2003 or four, and there was John McCrurick sitting alongside, um, the first thing I noticed was, A, that he, he didn't have that sort of intimidating aura, particularly about it when you sat next to him, but also the other thing was that um, he... He didn't talk for that long in the context of the whole programme, but what he said always had impact, which was probably a salutary lesson to all of us and one that I absolutely had not like followed. Exactly. I mean, you <laughs> far talk too, quite far, a lot. Far too much <laughs> yeah, talking, yeah, not yeah, enough yeah, impact, yeah. exactly. But you're also a very generous broadcaster. You know, you're, <laughs> you know, you're not trying to hog the camera all the time, are you? He wasn't scared. He wasn't scared. He'd take, he'd, he could take anything on. He wasn't scared. He'd go straight into a conversation or a topic. Yeah, he was pretty good that way as well. He must have been good to work with her because he was—he was he knew, knew his subject very well, and he was a good performer. He must it, to work with. He must have been easy. But actually, generosity is the, is the right word in, yeah. in the context of a show, because he'd always make sure that he he knew when to get the intervention in. His ti- his sense of timing when he was bang on was perfect. So, if somebody was, was to, and he could he could just sense a tiny little weakness in somebody's argument, he knew exactly. When to get the ball in it. It was. It was. It Do was you find Mark Chapman the same to work with? I think they're very, very different. <laughs> I think they're very different beings. Although I've never worked with Matt on the same program. Yeah, no, right. never, never, never have. I mean, obviously, okay. I know him very well. But mm. um, you know, and obviously, they're both kind of uh, ebullient personalities. But I think quite. And I think Matt would say the same thing. Very different broadcasters. I don't think Matt's acting, whereas I always felt that John McCrick was acting to a degree. I think Matt is Matt. Well, the the impact that he left on yesterday will be discussed a little bit later on in the programme because Simon Clare from Coral will be joining us on the phone at half past ten to talk about, amongst other things, betting shop closures and yesterday's uh, multiple bets on on Frankie Dottori. And, of course, Frankie Dottori won the big race. The Coral Eclipse 2019 went to the brilliant mayor the modern-day superstar that is Enable, and look at her, on a seasonal debut, bang, straight out of the stalls there in those coloured Abdullah Silks pink cap, and having the tactical speed, Jimmy Quinn, to get the position that Frankie Dottori and Ryan Moore probably both wanted. Yeah, but, I mean, obviously O'Brien's is there as the pacemaker, but Enable, she took Frankie where he wanted to be in the race. She's a jockey's dream, straight in there, good position. Use the pacemaker. He's class, so does the feeling. And amazing, really, on a, on a seasonal comeback. You'd expect her to be a little keener, a little fresher, but she's such a professional. She's, I mean, she's, look at you, look, she's, she's a very, very good filly. 
and uh, she she'd be trained for this race. Um, I mean, like this this would be they say the prep or whatever, but she'll have or three four races this year, and that, that'll be probably her finish. You know? Jamie, what did you make of this? Um, I was on the M25 at the time, but obviously you've watched uh, it many times. So <laughs> I'm in preparation for this. Homework. Um, I think that uh, I think in some of her races she has run the risk of just marginally over racing early on, and maybe the part of the brilliance of yesterday, mile and a quarter for the for a first run back, and they've just gone that little half gear faster than they would have done in some of her races, have enabled her enabled her to uh, just relax into a better rhythm. And look, the one thing, as brilliant as she is, the one thing that I think we all need to be in awe of at the moment and uh, is the tactical genius of the man on top. He, you know, there are little tiny things that occur in races, um, little small decisions that the majority of people won't notice that really make a difference. And he is, well, he should be the length of time he's been doing it, but he's using all that experience that he's had in the last however many years to ride these guys to sleep at the moment. I don't know whether Jimmy agrees, but that's the way I was looking at it. Jimmy? Look, it's, 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 you've got to take your hat off to him. From, from the time he was an apprentice, he's been at top of his game. Uh, you know, wherever he goes in the world, he's noticed. And on the big stage, you will not get anyone in the way room better than him. As Mr. Gosling said, as anyone says, don't send him to Brighton on a Monday or Tuesday. But on, on the on, on the big stage, he's just you won't you won't get anyone better than him, no matter where where it is, whether it's in the UK or overseas or wherever. He's he's very good. Tiny child's eye out then. <laughs> <laughs> You said tiny little differences through the race. First off, I said the position that they both wanted, Frankie got, but I guess he had the horse to get him there. He had a wider draw, so it was going to be more difficult for him. Yet, come the straight, he's ended up inside, shortest way on the rail. Look, he's just... Uh, the guy is, um, you know... Uh, all those years of practice uh, are coming... Oh, they've been in fruition for an awful long time. But he is just... I mean, he watched him at Royal Ascot. I yeah. mean, he was—he won a few races at Royal Ascot that others may not have won. Exactly. And just through experience, knowledge, bravery, um, and just that innate sense of when and where through a race. There's no substitute for experience, Jimmy, is there? No. I was, uh, it's like... Well, Jamie, that, Jamie you like, should be you should right up there. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, it's like if you've got a favourite in the Gold Cup or a favourite in whatever, like say, it's like we've got a favourite in a Group One. You know, when when you'll probably be younger, you'd be like squeaking a bit. Whereas like Frankie, you're just taking his stride. Even now, if I, I've had a, a favourite in a Group One, I wouldn't worry about it. Just taking his stride. But the one thing that was really striking yesterday and has been striking through some of the big race victories he's had this season. Uh, was the depth of his appreciation now, perhaps relative to 10, 15 years ago. And this is what Frankie, John Gosden and Teddy Grimthorpe had to say in the immediate aftermath of Enable's victory. Uh, we came here today, 85-90. I sort of judged it, but uh, I think I was probably closer to 90. You don't win an eclipse if you're too short. No. And, uh, you know, the step up and trip of the King George should hopefully suit her as well. So if she's 90 now, we're looking at 100 in the King George well, and then you cycle you, around for the R? Well, you, when you haven't run for eight months, I'm not going to crank her at home and 
force her to get to absolute race fitness. There's no doubt when they race and they tighten, they harden, uh, you know, horses. It's like, uh, it's like any great athlete in competition. So, you know, she's done beautiful bridal work at home. She hasn't been off the bridal. She's just been doing everything as she pleased, but she's just showing the old spark and flame over the last two weeks. Amazing. Uh, we, um, we tried to get her for Ascot. Didn't come to herself then. And then slowly we chipped away. And this last 10 days, she's really turned the corner. And uh, quietly we were confident. Obviously, the others were race fit, but uh, what a horse. And not that quietly either. I mean, you and John had tried to contain it, but Rab Hadland could hardly contain his excitement. Clearly everyone at Clarehaven knew she was bang on point. She, well, yes. Um, you know, look, she, when, when she's on song, she put tears in your eyes. I mean, she is unbelievable. And uh, she's uh, uncomplicated. The longer the race goes, the better she goes. <laughs> I had to take a pull at the free. She wanted to go there, and I went, no, just let's wait another furlough, then we can go. And uh, yeah, great, fantastic. I, I, I got no more accolades to tell her. She's you know best of ridden, she's amazing and ultra consistent. I mean, and remarkably, 12 winners in 12 different tracks. <laughs> so she doesn't even know where she's going. She's unbelievable, great. Well, uh, from Vince Carlin downwards, uh, it means so much, it means so much to him to have a horse of this calibre uh, and rarely for, uh, Prince Khalid enjoys his racing but so does Enable which is, which is the joy of it really she has a fantastic mind she has a great will to do it you could just see it before, almost before the start she was, she was looking about and then, uh, just with a great look I thought and then when she pinged the stalls you were, all, you, you were sort of took a bit of a a breather then because it, 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 it looked like the plan was going to sort of pan out nicely and these are the victories 10 in a row for Enable beginning with that Cheshire Oaks triumph after which I think one bookmaker offered 10 to 1 about victory in the Oaks itself it didn't last an awful long time I don't think and she won at Epsom at the Curra she won the King George she goes back there in three weeks time Yorkshire Oaks the Ark September stays the Ark again, the Breeders' Cup turf, the first horse in history to do that, double the Ark and the Breeders' Cup in the same season. She might not even have been at her best to do it, and she's come back with victory in the Coral Eclipse. It's a diverse and varied selection of races at the very top level. James Willoughby joins us on the line. And what about an appreciation of that, James? It's not very difficult, is it? No, we had a great day yesterday, didn't we, Lucky? Yeah, we, we certainly did. I mean, I wish we could have talked about it a little longer, but we can linger over it a bit this morning. <laughs> yeah, we can. Well, this is the, let me do the boring bits now. I think you've covered it in the studio beautifully. It's the 13th fastest electrically recorded eclipse in history. Yeah. 1.4 seconds, 7 seconds off the best, which is by Sea the Stars. Actually slower than Roaring Lion, 204.04, and Ulysses, 203.49 the last two years. Um, we can compare it with the final 10 furlong handicap which I think is a very good race, actually, at its level. Um, and um, Enable was 2.85 seconds faster than this. It comes out only at a time gap of 27 pounds, allowing for weight for age down to 17. So all this is telling you that actually the time wasn't as good as the performance, and the reason for that comes, as usual, by the sectional times. And um, it appears that towards the end of the back straight, after a brisk early pace, the tempo slowed a fair bit, and this compromised the race as a time trial. And... If anything, Hunting Horn probably should have kicked on a bit. Magical, his stable companion, was always really struggling to 
go the pacing behind, and it was a naval's high cruising speed that enabled a Franco de Torre, as you've already covered mm. extensively, to take up that favourable so, track position. So that, that point you made before the race yesterday that I just touched on, that whoever got that sit behind Hunting Horn was at a massive tactical advantage, has actually been borne out by the sectional times, yes? Yeah, because on a round track, it's important that the rider in second day, effectively, with, a, with, with cheap speed, to be respectful to Hunting Horn in front, he then dictates, he's basically like a setting the pace and dictating the tempo. And I think the extraordinary thing about Enable is that she's by Nathaniel out of a saddle as well as mare. She's a massive stayer. She could run as long as you wanted her to run. And we were talking all about stamina in the thoroughbred yesterday, weren't we, with uh, all these horses who descend from Eclipse himself, who used to run over four miles. So basically all thoroughbreds are massive stayers. It's just that we, we run them over very short distances nowadays. And um, she is this She's a huge stamina component, but what we saw yesterday was that when you ally that with speed, you have brilliance. Speed plus stamina equals brilliance is the, is the formula here. And as the tempo went up in the straight, the second last furlong, they were really stretched. Frankie Dettori said he waited from three down to two and then pressed the button at two. And probably at that point, thir- you know, we saw thoroughbreds stretch to the outer limits of what they can do at, at that point. But for her... It was quite easy. She just skipped along. She lengthened her, her long stride a little bit, and she didn't find it stressful. And in behind her, Magical, who is a wonderful horse, and, and battled on with tremendous courage to once again cut the margin to less than a length, as she had done in the Breeders' Cup turf. Um, but Enable's combination of assets is what makes her unique. She has this tremendous speed that would, we saw her over 10 furlongs for the first time since she was defeated at the trip. Um, as a young three-year-old, but it was no problem to her whatsoever. And, you know, neither would be a mile if she was asked to do it. And this is what we see in the great thoroughbred, that they can beat horses over one furlong, any one furlong of the race. They're faster than everything else, so they're, they're faster over five, six, seven, eight, yeah. all the way up to perhaps even Eclipse's distance, if we still asked them to do that. And it was absolutely marvellous to see that and to be reminded of how great the thoroughbred is as, as an athlete. So, James, let me ask you this in conclusion. If she goes to the King George VI and Queen Elizabeth Stakes, which is the intended plan, and she comes up against her old adversary, Crystal Ocean, is Crystal Ocean likely to give her more of a race than he did last time they met at Kempton last, uh, last autumn? He might do, but he's got no shot. She's a different breed of cat, and only a naval can beat a naval, no matter what other horses do to her. Every horse can have an off day, and every horse can find themselves in such adverse tactical situations that they can't get out of it. But with this horse... She's got the speed to, to, to be placed wherever Frankie Dettori wants her to be placed. And, and Jamie Osborne spoke very eloquently about how he's been riding uh, this year. It is the essence of thoroughbred racing is the synergy between the brilliant human athlete and the brilliant equine athlete. And I think everyone who was at Sandown Park yesterday who flocked down to the winner's enclosure to be close to enable, no matter how expert they were in horse racing, no matter how much they understood the nuances of analysing a race or whatever, they felt that for themselves because they were close to it and it was absolutely brilliant. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Just while I was interviewing Simon Clare from Coral before the break, some very sad news uh, has broken. David Mills from the Racing Post has broken this story this morning, and that is that Sea of Class's career has come to an end, and she's fighting for her life 
after a bout of colic. Uh, she was absolutely brilliant in her brief career as a racehorse. This was her scintillating performance at York last year, after which she went on to, well, run one of the great mares of all time, enable so close in the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, and but for better fortune, she might just have beaten her. And we were all excited about the potential rematch. And now, as we extend our sympathies to the Choi family and to William and Maureen Haggis, who love this filly so dearly, now we just keep our fingers crossed that she can battle and battle and battle some more and that her life can be saved. Um, that is a, a wretched, wretched blow, Jamie, to the, to the Haggis team. As I welcome James Savage, Hi. head man to Sir Michael's Dow, to the programme as well. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, another example of the fragility of these animals and, you know, why people get so excited when they have a good one and, and, and have, have, have nice winners because they understand that it can be taken away like that. Let's just hope she's going to be all right. And the Haggis team were having winners everywhere you looked around the country yesterday, but I, I would think every one of those would have gone right back just for some, some crumb of comfort as regards Sea of Glass's well-being. Because it's just all about saving her now. Yeah, especially with her being a filly. Obviously, yeah. you know, she's, she, she can have a long and fruitful life post-racing as long as she can get through this bout. James Savage, welcome to the programme. I'm, I'm sorry to welcome you on a, on a, on a somewhat sombre note, news. but you as, a, as someone who is personally responsible for the well-being of so many top-class horses will empathise with those at Williams Yard more than anyone else, perhaps, that we could have had in that seat now. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's, it's not a nice situation to be in and... It, like I echo what Jamie says, when you get a good one, it's so it's so important because it's so hard to get them there, just you know, just to get them to the race. They're so such, such fragile, fragile beasts. And you're in a fortunate position, and, and William Staff are in a fortunate position, and that you're in powerful yards with lovely mm. horses and great bloodstock. But you're always going to get those extra special ones that that transcend all the others and like get themselves into the public consciousness. How much of a real responsibility do you feel to, to those to those horses? Oh, massive, massive, because they're. they're we're, you know, we're, we're there to care for them and bring them on and we're given responsibility to look after them, the staff, myself and, you know, Sir Michael by his owners. So to get them to come along quietly and look after them, just to try and keep them healthy and sound and well, it's, it's just massive. It is. It's racing staff week, of yeah. course. Um, and I know you're very passionate about the concept. How do you feel the, the body as a whole is being looked after now? I think it's improving. I think it's it's... It, I think it was a good week um, to publicise not just the stable staff but the whole industry. Um, I think it's important now it's the National Association of Racing staff because there's so much work goes into these horses before we even get you know we get them in our care and even make race days happen like race course staff. It's just this massive industry. I think it was very important to you know I think it was really well represented this week I think by Racing Post and Racing Welfare and Racing Channels um, the interviews they did. Not like I said, not just with stable staff, with the whole industry. And it's really big. It struck me that we've we've done an awful lot in, in recent years, particularly with the Dolphin Stud and Stable Staff mm. Awards, and with the work that goes on racing welfare and others. And I know NARS, the National Association of Racing Staff, are, are hugely passionate about making the working life of racing staff better. But putting key members of staff in the limelight, as the television channels are doing better now, as you say. It's appreciated, that, yeah. That is hugely appreciated, mm. but of course it also means that there are plenty of people who are doing lots of hard work who aren't being put in the limelight yeah, so much, so we need, to, we need to share the love properly. Yeah, it's true, yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of work goes into, well, every day, just 
making it happen, training the horses in the morning. So, But for them to feel like we're, there's been various stable stuff, parties, race course parties, Jamie had one last night for his staff, and they do appreciate it, and they just appreciate knowing that the, whole, the, the public, are, you know, be, you know, knowing how hard they're working. And um, it's important because it, it, it is hard work, but it's very rewarding. Tell me a little bit about how you ended up with Sir Michael Stout. I was um, leaving school and I didn't know really what to do, so I started working weekends uh, up in the Midlands for Bill Priest, um, trained a few jumpers and some nice ones as well. Um, when he sent me to the racing school, he thought I'd be better if I was, wanted to be an apprentice going to Newmarket. And so I went to Mark Tompkins's for a year um, as an apprentice, then Nazidas for a year, and I just oh, I got too heavy. And I actually rode a winner free in Bartlett. How tall are you now? Um, I'd be about 5'10", I think. I don't know. So you rode a winner for Bartlett? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's Sobble. Yeah. And who, can you remember the name of the horse? <laughs> That's what we were talking about it early on. Sue Wilton claimed that it's, it'll come back to me in a minute. How far, did yeah. he remember that yeah, it was? Yeah, yeah, we were talking about it in the green room, yeah. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. And so when you got too heavy and... Yeah, I, I, I just thought maybe I wanted to... There was an option of going... Uh, Nazida actually asked me, did I want to go and give it a go at Martin Pipes? Mm-hmm. So he could help me out there. And I thought about it and thought, it's probably not for me. They're, they're too brave, them jump jockeys. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted, to st- I, I wanted to go somewhere where I could develop and, um, you know, climb the ladder. And so you ended up at so I went to some Michaels, yeah, yeah. And the one thing that always comes through when you, you speak to people there is how much they enjoy working for Sir Michael yeah. Stout. It, to, to us, he can seem sometimes an inscrutable figure, and you're never quite sure what he's thinking, and uh, that's, that's probably Unique. perfectly by design. Unique, a, a, an extraordinary character. The st- staff seem to absolutely love him. He's very loyal, extremely fair, um, on a personal or a professional issue, there's no problem. It's too big for him to go, you know, to go to him with. And he's uh, he listens to his staff. Their opinion's very important. Like a lot of our horses would be regularly ridden the same day by the same rider, change them up on work days maybe to get the jockeys to have a sit on them, etc. Which I'm sure would sit with you as well. But, so their opinions is massive. They know the behaviour of the horse. They know everything about the horse. So he, he he's very. He's very careful in listening to that and takes it on board. The, the staff's opinion matters. And they feel that, it, that you know, it's, it's a rewarding job, Sir Michael's, because they, they, they feel like he makes everyone feel like they're part of the, the team. You know, the big days, mm. everyone's really feels rewarded for it. And it's a, it's a big team as well. How oh, many of you are there? There'd be, oh, there'd be more than 70, 80 mm. yeah, staff. Now, you had a, um, an amazing year. Uh, last year, you were put on a personal level because yeah. you, were, you were very closely associated with Expert Eye who ended up winning the, the Breeders' Cup mile. But would it be fair to say that, that the marshalling and curating of his career was not straightforward? No, it wasn't, unfortunately. And um, the Saturday morning of the Jewess, we had the Guinea's favourite for the year after. And the Saturday afternoon of the Jewess, it was, we were all a little bit balloons burst as such. You know, it was very disappointing. But the Boston still, you know, it's a long winter, we can get him back and but it, it, it was a long winter thinking about getting him back, but that became even harder when we went to do some stalls practice in the spring, and um, it was quite evident that he was going to be an issue. Um, we, we asked the, the, the Witherfords, Craig and Gary, to come and help us straight away because he wasn't going to be easy. So his preparation for the Greenham and the Guineas, it, it was never going to be 
easy because of the stores practice we were having to do with him. Mm. But um, all the time the boss just said, stay patient and it'll happen, he'll come back. And um, we started, to, I started, you know, just before Ascot, I thought, you know, this, this horse is starting to give me a feel, you know, he's, he's, he's starting to feel really keen again and wanting to do it. And so it was no surprise the way he won the jersey. Um, maybe a little surprise how far he won it, but it was no surprise he won it. And then we sort of knew that we, we were getting there. There was still improvement, but we were getting there. He was a, such a clever horse. Um, Too clever? Um, no, no, because if he, if he did something that, um, uh, let's just say, if he did something that he knew wasn't good for him, he wouldn't do it again. Gary Witherford was quick to pick up on that. Um, so, so it, yeah, not too clever. He was a very, very genuine horse. Um, he was a little bit pace-dependent in his races when we stepped up to Mars, so we always thought the Breeders' Cup would be his gig. I thought he should have won in France as well, maybe. How, why did it not happen for him in France? I thought um, they, he just missed the kick a bit, and Ryan thought the, the whole job at home was... Uh, to get over the stalls, but also to get him switched off and relaxed in his races. And Ryan said he was very surprised. He hadn't ridden him, he hadn't ridden him in the Guineas, he hadn't ridden him in the um, in Ascot. But he was so surprised at how or the uh, good, glorious Goodwood. So he was so surprised at how he switched off. He said he almost caught me. Mm. And it, uh, then he's a little far back. Um, but listen, all well that ends well. And went it went out on a high. It ended gloriously in at Churchill Downs, in the Breeders' Cup Mile. How special a day for you was that? Was it the best day of your career? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I did a classic when I, when I was 20, I was so lucky, called Goland, and I was probably too young to appreciate it. But I just looked after him. I wasn't a trusted one riding him at the time. There was, uh, there was some good guys riding him. So that was all good, but Expert Eye was, it was quite emotional, actually. It was quite very rewarding. Because you're going, you're going the other side of the world yeah. and take it. And you do a lot of international travelling for Michael. Yeah, we're very lucky, yeah, yeah. He, he entrusts us with taking the, the horses abroad, and um, it's a it's a really nice part of our job. To be fair, I've been lucky enough to go to Hong Kong twice. I think six Breeders' Cups all around Europe, and, and had success as well. The, so. the journey that, that James and others, Jamie, live with these horses is is remarkable. Isn't it? I mean, you've seen it. I mean, it, it, almost to a to a ridiculous level with Jimmy Hopes, McCarthy yeah. and Tosa New York, who are, mm. I mean, if you could marry a man and a horse, um, <laughs> but. You know what I'm saying? That 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 emotional journey is a very, very uh, interesting and strong one. Yeah, well, I think just listening to James there. I mean, anybody that doesn't really understand what goes into the whole process of these animals, and they think that they're just like motorbikes that mm. arrive on a arrive on a daily basis, and you know, why haven't they performed the same as they performed the last time? You know, James has said so so brilliantly there. You know, just give an example of one horse. Now there are however many thousand horses in training, mm. and and. Everybody has got their little micro scenarios going on with them, and um, each one will be different. Some will some will fit into bigger categories than others, yeah. and you'll get the expert eyes that need that absolute special bit of bit of special management. Um, but I think it's very easy to forget if you're watching racing and you're going racing and you see these horses walk around the paddock off they go down to the start and the thing why hasn't it done the same as it did before, or you know what is going on here. Um, the, the amount of work that, a, that teams put in to every animal, the amount of brain process that goes into it to, to ultimately maximise these horses. And, you know, I, I find it uh, 
a little, I don't find it annoying actually. I don't find it annoying. It's just, it's just, I think we probably as a sport need to get across more mm. to the critics that, that sort of, you know, when they don't perform within a pound each mm. time. Everything that goes into it, you know, this is, we are not fine tuning Formula One engines here where if you do two screws on your spanner last week, it'll probably work exactly the same this week with two screws on your spanner. Mm. These are living creatures with minds. And, you know, we, and it's a team, brilliance of the teams around you that can just get, I mean, expert eye, for example, mm. we all watched his career. We kind of knew he wasn't straightforward. And here you've got the man that was right at the front of making sure that those nuts and bolts yeah. were absolutely in the right place. Yeah. Were the and an awful lot of, well. I mean, the level of work you yeah. must have gone into, gone into him. But they installed confidence in, in us, Gary and Craig, that they, you know, we could get beyond the stalls issue, which was massive, you know, to just go forward with that, just have them, uh, have them around us. That was important. And for every expert eye, triumphant story. There's mm, yeah, several that <laughs> there's several that aren't so so triumphant, and you've kind of got to get over that and rationalise that as well. Yes, yeah, like um, I know he was a successful horse, but I think Harbinger was probably one of the best horses I've ever seen. And to have him, we thought he was still improving after the King George, and to have him break down, we were lucky. Lucky we saved him, and he's having a successful stud career. stallion, but. That there is moments where you, you know, and even the, the lower grade horses, that if you can't get them to maximise their potential, you feel like you haven't done your job properly. Or you feel it's a heartbreaking. Bit, I know, like 70 rated horses to sell it. You're giving them to care for and you want them to, you want to maximise their potential for the owners and the, all the, you know, the whole staff. And it's just, it's, that's why when you have the big day, it's, mm. it is massive. Now, now, on this show next week, a Regal Reality is going to be my guest, and he's going to sit there and tell me uh, <laughs> and tell me what's been going through his head for the last for the last three months. I think it'd be quite an interesting interview, don't you? Well, you'd have to get him through the door first, I think. <laughs> he actually he'd find a way, I'd say. Yeah. So he's been to Sandown three times now, and um, he I know it looked bad yesterday, but he actually behaved better than he did last time. Um, so th that's you, isn't it? The yeah. far side so of the I've white shirt. So yeah, I've got a halter on him that um, we used to use on this, but I actually did. Um, and it was just tr tr trying to, yeah, affect some pressure points around his pole. Just give me a bit more control. But so that's just on the top of his yeah, head, between his ears. Top, yeah, yeah. But he's just so reluctant. And then he got left on his own. And here's the point where I say to the boss, should we just canter him the other way around? Because he's not easy, but he's got talent. You know, to... to behave like that and still run up behind one of the best mares we've ever seen. It, it, in your experience as a horseman, James, is he getting, is he actually worked up here or, or not? Is he, is he himself worried and anxious? It's hard to say because his behaviour um, daily can be so simple and so you, you don't notice him in the stream. But if he goes somewhere he doesn't like, he just, and he obviously didn't like Sandown mm. <laughs> too much yesterday. Um, He's a horse with a lot of ability. We just need to. We've got the right team around him. Patient owners, patient trainer. Um, it'll it'll happen for him. So it rather does suggest that maybe he's not being naughty. He's just he's um, just bothered by the experience. Yeah. yeah. Let's hope when we take if we yeah when we take him away somewhere else next time his behaviour will improve. Like I said he actually got 
he was a little bit worse the Brigadier Gerard night, so um, there was improvement yesterday. It was just it was on ITV racing. It was everyone to see. Therefore, with that in mind, do you think that if you can get him down to the start in one piece and sort of all oh. like all hunky dory, that he's actually capable of running better? Oh, I've not even he's better. Capable of winning the Group One. Yeah, yeah but he's he's, he's not. A blinder he's not conserving energy, is he? In the prelims, you know, he, um, he's. Up, Sweating up and he's gone the wrong way around. Yeah, we'll, look, we'll, we'll work on him and <coughs> we'll look to improve his behaviour. And he looks pretty willing in the in oh, the race. Absolutely. And straightforward enough. Yeah, yeah. That's why it's just a little bit challenging. <laughs> and being third to two brilliant fillies like that brilliant is fillies, yeah. no no disgrace at all. Brilliant fillies. So where might he go next? Do you think? I I wouldn't know the answer to that. To be Funnily honest, enough, I you. thought you might say that. <laughs> I've worked for some open staff for too long. <laughs> you, you're well trained. Getting getting a plan out of the great man is always is always quite tricky. Well, well it, it's, it's hard because yeah. I mean, Jamie Osborne will know himself. Like if we go back and we scrutinise everything the day after, we look at the horses, the, mm. the horses that haven't run so well, and the horses that haven't run so well, just to make sure that we're all good to go again, and then he lays with owners. It's hard to just, mm. just answer questions straight away after a race, or and less it, than 24 hours after and, a race. And, it, and in all fairness, with a horse like that, you don't have to be Einstein to work out that there's only X many races you can actually exactly, run in yeah. anyway. He's so a, He's, a, he's going to be a group, he's a group one horse, isn't yeah. he? Do you, I mean, do you think 10 furlongs is him through and through? Do you think that's his <laughs> um, absolute optimum? A very fast run mile. Mm. Or or ten, I think if he's a at a mile, he needs a proper gallop to go at. I think if you think back to Goodwood last year, they went a million miles an hour, and Frankie picked him up real smooth at the end. He's just got to get into that rhythm. But you'd put him in that bracket of horses that you, you, is he be- a better horse than some horses that have won Group Ones that you've been associated with? From what I've seen at home, potentially, yeah, 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 he's got talent, and we've seen from. Yeah, you know, so Michael over the years he can keep squeezing, oh, keep yeah. squeezing, keep, and there's more, there's more juice in the horse than perhaps there would have been in another yard when they get to five, six, seven. And we look at Mustachery this year winning a, winning a Group One, and I know you've got a lot of credit for that as well. It was more more the girl who who looks after him and rides him, Jade. Would um, no, that was um, that was a that was a good effort by her, um, and that was uh, th- th- it was good. Like we weren't surprised with that. He was in good order, and the yeah. early Sefton form was has worked out amazingly well. So we weren't surprised by the Lockinge win. Mm. Um, you know, he maybe a strong run ten yesterday is just a little bit too far for him. But yeah. you think there's still another big performance? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, he was a horse who'd had a myriad of difficulties leading up to this season. Yeah, he, he, he was he was fragile as a younger horse, and the, um, he went over to the Breeders' Cup with expert eye. Yeah, and that that brought him on no end. Did it? Yeah, yeah. So just, just the whole because, experience of yeah, going and doing that. Yeah, yeah. he just. We used the word man up, but it made him grow up a bit. That's you interesting. Know? Yeah. Because you think, wouldn't you, Jamie, that, that, that an experience like that, taking them, and you've travelled horses abroad, would, might, you know, you have to be quite careful, it might set them back, you don't want to take too much out of them. I'm really interested that James said sometimes it can put an edge on them and make them a, make them a better racehorse. Mm. I mean, it could go either way, though, can't uh, it? You, you have to be careful yeah. of the horse you're sending there. You, yeah. But it's um, something that's it, it worked with him. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. Final 15 minutes of today's programme, we are going to pay tribute to the great John McCurick, whose career was extraordinarily successful and 
quite extraordinary, frankly, and life will be a, a much less interesting place uh, without him. His great friend and colleague for a long time, Claude Duval, who was uh, the Suns racing correspondent at the Punters Pal for so many years, uh, joins me on the line now. Claude, good morning. Good morning, Lucky. Nice to see you back in harness, and uh, we didn't want to lose any more talented racing old Herovians. <laughs> so this is a very sad time. Um, I think uh, that John did more to promote racing than, than anybody else I know. Um, and I hope the Jockey Club uh, run a race in memory of him, fittingly would be at Epsom, where, of course, he started life up on the hill uh, as a bookmaker. Um, I, I'm privileged to have known him, and I think he made life a lot richer for many people who, who knew him. He was, as you know, he was a failed bookmaker. He was a failed waiter at the Dorchester and got the sack for pouring soup over some uh, diner's uh, lap one, one day. But he, he was very much the face of racing, and um, we'll greatly miss him. The thing that strikes me, Claude, is that uh, having worked with him for, for quite a few years was his ability to, to get to the nub of a story very, very quickly, more quickly than anyone else I've encountered in our industry. He knew what the people wanted and he knew what the story was, while the rest of us were kind of shilly-shally around the point and maybe not sometimes get to it as quickly. No, he was quite brilliant. As you say, the one thing I learned about working with him uh, on TV programmes was the amount of... Uh, homework he did, endless homework. The, the poor, long-suffering uh, booby used to have to drive down to King's Cross on a Friday night and buy all the papers. And he'd sit up looking through everything so that when he went on television on the morning line, he, he knew he got everything, he grasped everything. I mean, naturals like John Frankham and Alistair Down, they could turn up with a minute to go mm. and b because of their great personalities, uh, they were great success. But John... Um, I don't think many people outside the game realise just how much homeward, homework he would put into his performances. And uh, Claude, you, you're one of the very few people who I think could could have called Mac a, a really close friend. You spent time together socially as well as as well as professionally. What what sort of man was he for you as a as a companion, as a friend? Yeah, well, <laughs> most of the world, of course, saw him as a loud-mouthed, opinionated character. But, uh, you know, he stalked the old betting jungle for the undisputed King of the Ring for over 30 years. He was a unique showman. I've often thought, uh, Lucky, that he really, he was an actor, wasn't he? When, the, when he knew he was on the, on the screen and when the cameras were rolling, he put on a performance. It was, it was like that. But away from it all, he was um, a very, very generous person, as I think you probably yeah. know. Um, I remember staying with him at the famous trap in North London uh, for uh, an Epsom meeting, and he said, uh, do you know who was the last person to sleep in that bed? And I said, no, I don't know. And he said, Edwina Curry. <laughs> they'd been on the famous white swap program. And he said to me, they were the most unpleasant five days of his life. He said, I would have shot myself if I'd been married to that bloody woman. Yeah, I think, I think the feeling was pretty mutual as well. Um, <laughs> I, and you say you say that the the TV performance or that the the ring was a was an act. He, he somehow managed to to give it great authenticity, though, didn't he? And he, he sort of made a huge amount of viewers feel like they were part of his part of his world, which no one had ever really done before. No, and certainly not in the betting ring. He, he was, as I say, he was unique. I think he was a great actor. Um, he used to moan about all the people behind him 
waving and all the rest of it, and uh, he always used to shout, leave me alone, leave me alone. But he, he loved the attention. He was two men in one. He, he, he really loved the attention. And if he'd walked onto a race course and people hadn't recognised him, he'd have been absolutely terrified, you know. But, uh, no, away from it all, um, I, I must say, I'd been amazed just recently the people who've come forward, racing personalities who've given in gushing tributes, but as you real know, his real friends knew that there were certain people in the racing world, he absolutely loathed the sight of them. And, um, he, he, uh, he certainly bore lifetime grudges, as you know, against various people. I recall coming away from uh, Chester, must be 20 years ago, and we'd lined up a taxi to miss the last race, and we were waiting for one of his Channel 4 colleagues, who I will not name, but you might guess, and we were waiting and waiting for this uh, third person, and he didn't turn up. McCrick said to the taxi driver, get us to the station. We're not waiting for this blankety-blank. And we got in the cab. We got to the station, and we got on the train and in the first class, and there was one seat opposite. <laughs> and down the carriageway came this well-known personality, and he sat down opposite us. And they didn't acknowledge each other at all. And uh, McCrick got the steward, and he said, uh, one bottle of champagne, two glasses. And uh, I thought, well, this is rather embarrassing, but we, John and I duly polished off the bottle. And then the third person said to the steward, one bottle of champagne and two glasses. So I had a, a lovely run back to London with these. You know, they never said a word between them, not for one second. But, uh, no, he was, he was a, a very, very kind person, um, generous to a fault. He remembered all those days when he'd, you know, been a waiter and all the rest of it. And he, he used to, I think on the Euro Star, when we used to go over to Longchamp, uh, the stewards, the French stewards, they used to rub their hands when, when they saw him getting on because he would, he would order drinks, etc., etc., and then he would give the most outrageous tips to his staff. And I used to say to him, John, you realise you've just given that bloke the equivalent of 20 quid. No, don't worry about that, Pantus Pal. He said, I know the way these poor people suffer. And, you know, he was, uh, as I say, you couldn't fault him as a friend. He was very, very generous. Um, I, he rang me, I have to say, about a fortnight ago, out of the blue, and I said, how are you? And I knew, I knew, everybody knew how ill he was. You'd only got to see him, the six, seven stone he'd lost. And um, he said to me, rather pathetically, looking back now, he said, I eat to live, but I don't want to live. I'm an old dinosaur, but don't feel any pity for me. When you lose a job you love, you lose your very soul. And, of course, having worked for Channel 4 for 30 years, he got a heartless telephone call to tell him that they no longer wanted him. And um, as he said to me, I was thrown on a scrap heap simply because of my age. Though I, I, I know a lot of people thought he was a male chauvinist pig, but largely that was all an act. And uh, he, he could appear to be a buffoon, we all know that. But he was a fierce atheist, and uh, he used to stress to me so many times, there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no religion, and religion has caused more deaths uh, and wars than anybody at all. And he didn't want a memorial service, and the usual platitudes from professional funeral speakers. He just wanted to be cremated, and his ashes scattered at the one furlong pole at the old Alley Pally racecourse, uh, where he went as a, virtually as a child, and he used to watch Prince Monolulu putting on his performance. And I often thought, 
uh, in his mind, he saw himself as the modern-day uh, tipster shouting the odds and waving his arms. Uh, but he loved Ali Pally. He used to regale me with stories how he'd go there and he'd see the great Scobie Breezley arrive sitting in the back of a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce. And it will be fitting that, uh, that that is where the great man is going to end up. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.